0: Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me, though he were to die, shall never, or, though he were to die, shall never die. Before we begin our study today, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance on our study. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to Reflect upon your word, to think through what you have revealed to us about the nature of reality and the nature of what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, what it means to be a disciple. Father, as we look at this passage of Scripture today, it is a challenge for each of us because it focuses us on our own priorities, on what we value in life and what we are uh, willing to uh, give up in terms of our focus upon you? Are we really willing to follow the Lord Jesus Christ to make your word the number one priority in our life? Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us in terms of the areas of our life that we need to recognize or not in submission to your authority that we might uh, be able to address for each of us, our own desire to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of the standards that he laid down. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last time I began by talking about the fact that we are all involved in a war. We are surrounded by the enemy because we, as believers in Jesus Christ, live and operate exclusively within enemy territory. Since Adam ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the authority that has taken over this earth is the authority of Satan. Scripture teaches that we live under his authority. We live in his domain. And Paul, on numerous occasions, talks about the fact that when we trust in Christ, we are transferred from the authority of Satan to the kingdom of his beloved son, this transfer takes place instantly at the point at which we are saved. problem we often run into in our Christian life is we have a traitor inside of us. That traitor is the sin nature, and that sin nature is oriented to the world system, the cosmic system that is Satan's system of thought, that is Satan's operational domain. The word that is used in the Bible to describe this is the word world. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, we're told not to be conformed to the world, and the word therefore conformed has the idea of being pressed into that mold, to think like those around us think, to act like those around us think, to to conform to the standards of the culture around us so that we do not stand out. If the world around us is under the authority of Scripture, and Scripture says that it is, that Satan is the god of this age in 2 Corinthians 4.4, that he is the prince and the power of the air in Ephesians 2.2, then what we recognize is that those who are living in, in enemy territory, when we stand out, we are going to create conflict within that territory we become identified more and more in our current american culture as the enemy because as the culture drifts more and more in the direction of the uh, of of pure paganism and uh, as more and more overtly antagonistic to biblical values then we are going to be more and more identified with that which is evil this is exactly what Jesus warned the disciples about as he sent them out uh, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. He said that if they called him the devil, if they called him Beelzebub, which was a term that was used by by Jews to describe the ruler of the demon Satan if they called him Satan how much more are they going to call us Satan if they said that he's so evil that they would have to crucify him in order to protect their culture how much more would those uh, would his followers experience that same kind of hostility and that same kind of rejection now we've lived in a bubble uh, historical bubble for the last 300 years in the United States. We have been privileged and blessed beyond anything that we can imagine to live in a culture that was founded by, by Christians, by those who were truly regenerate, and who understood the biblical, uh, biblical teachings and biblical values and establishment principles related to the divine institutions. And even those who were not uh, necessarily born again or regenerate were so influenced by that worldview in the 17th century and 18th century that that worldview is embedded within the founding documents of this nation and within the, uh, the founding culture of this nation. But over the last uh, 250 years, uh, that has eroded again and again because this is a civilization that functions and operates within the devil's world. Satan has been in a grand assault against the United States and against the uh, theocentric view that, that influenced the founding of this of this country and it has eroded uh, gradually from decade to decade over the last 250 years and now we're at a we have passed a turning point i believe and we are living in a in a world that is becoming much more uh fearless in their opposition to biblical christianity and to biblical christians this uh spring the united states supreme court is going to take up a uh a a court case in relation to same-sex marriage, which is going to have and their decision will have implications that are going to reverberate through every state because the at the core, as I understand it, of this decision, they're going to be uh, addressing whether or not the states uh, even have the right to have these defense of marriage acts that make same-sex marriage uh, illegal, and I am fearful because of the direction this nation has been going, because of the trajectory we've had for the last uh, 40 years, that this Supreme Court ruling is going to affirm same-sex marriage for the nation. And that's going to be just another domino that's going to fall. And as a result of that, it won't be long before we see uh, many of the the states that have adopted hate speech legislation will... in will begin to apply that in terms of biblical christians and uh organizations that take a stand against same-sex union we've already seen that in numerous court cases in different states where people who have privately owned businesses have refused to uh provide services at same-sex uh, same-sex weddings and so this is going to become a a much much more of an issue where we will be identified as the problem we will be identified as promoting uh a, a, an anti uh a, a position that is against uh homosexuals and unfortunately there are too many christians that that take a very hateful position It is not that God hates homosexuals. It's God hates homosexuality. God hates murder. God hates lying. God hates any number of sins. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God has a love for the world that he provides the solution to sin, even though God abominates Sin, He does not abominate the sinner. That's a distinction, unfortunately, that will be always lost upon those who are not believers, but sadly it's lost upon too many people who claim to be Christians and might be Christians, but they don't understand grace orientation at all. So the battle in which we find ourselves is one that is going to get progressively more difficult, where we move from covert uh, covert persecution and opposition to more overt opposition. I talked about that last time that in much of our experience the opposition we have faced uh, in the world has been that of perhaps snide remarks or sarcasm ridicule. There are uh, those who have gone off to university, and especially if, you're, if you went to university or college in the last 20 years, you probably experienced uh, professors who specifically targeted uh, evangelical Christian beliefs in the classroom and might even have targeted you. I remember a, a young lady in Preston City Bible Church who went off to uh, uh, University of Connecticut and had to take a women's study course her first semester. And she came back after about two weeks, and she said that within the first week, the professor had identified the Christians within the group and began to target them and began to personally attack the views of just assuming they had pastors who taught, taught certain biblical principles, targeting their pastors as those that, that kept them enslaved in these antiquated ideas. And this was a regular drumbeat that just went on class after class after class. And if if young people are not fortified with the word of God to, to, to defend themselves against those views, even if it's just in their mind, not necessarily, I'm not advocating taking on their professor, but they ha- you have to have the defense in your mind to understand what the issues are and if you are not mentally fortified with the word of god then you will become uh you'll become a casualty in the angelic conflict very quickly because you don't have the intellectual ammunition necessary the spiritual intellectual ammunition necessary to withstand that assault and so we live in that kind of a world. We have to develop a very tough mindset as believers in this combat, uh, the kind of mindset that was evidenced uh, uh, in World War II at the Battle of the Bulge. I know many of you are lovers of history, especially lovers of uh, World War II history and, and military history. And you can you remember the details related to uh, the Battle of the Bulge, which took place in December of 1944. And this was the last great counteroffensive that the Nazis uh, 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 launched against the Allies, uh, launched across Belgium, and they surrounded the 101st Airborne at a place called Bastogne. And uh, they sent a contingency there to um, offer uh, terms of surrender to uh, General Anthony McAuliffe. And when uh, the the German uh, group was brought to them, and he, and he was told that they were there to discuss surrender, he said, "Theirs or ours?" <laughs> and when they he said, "No, they want us to surrender." And he he replied, "Ah, nuts." <laughs> And then as they discussed among themselves, as his staff discussed among themselves how they should reply, one of his officers said, well, why don't you just say what you said initially, just say nuts. And so that has gone down in history as the classic reply to a demand for surrender, and it shows a tough mental attitude. So his uh, one of his staff officers, Colonel Harrison, was in charge of the detail to go back to the Germans and to give them their answer. And, he, and they said, well, what was his answer? And he said, nuts. They looked at him and they looked had a look of confusion. They said, well, what does that mean? He said, that means go to hell. <laughs> See, that's the kind of fighting mentality Americans need to have. The next war we fought was in Korea. Uh, Well-known, one of the most decorated Marine Corps officers was a uh Chesty uh Chesty Puller Louis Chesty Puller and when the marine corps i think it was the uh, first marines were surrounded by the by the north koreans he said well we have the enemies all around us we can we have no fear no problems we just attack in every direction that's how we are we're surrounded by an enemy, and we have to have that kind of tough mental attitude that can only come from the Word of God because we have the conviction in our, deep in our soul that what we believe is the absolute truth, the truth of God's creation, the truth of the Word of God, and that no matter what opposition might, uh, might develop around us, we're going to stay tough, we're going to stay the course, and we're not going to let anything or anyone get in our way. That's the kind of mentality that Jesus is talking about as he warns his disciples in Matthew 10 of the kind of opposition that they are going to face. And so he warns them, and then he begins to tell them not to be afraid, not to fear what man can do to them, And as he goes forward in this, he says in verse 34, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. This is a quote from Micah chapter 7 verse 6. Referencing the fact that there is going to be this kind of opposition to extend even within the family, uh, to those who are obedient in the Old Testament concept, the context, those who were obedient to the Lord versus the the apostates within Israel. That it comes down to the closest of your relationships and that the person, that what Jesus is saying here is that the person who is uh, willing to be a disciple a follower of Jesus. That's not be a Christian. A Christian is not the same as a disciple. Not all of the disciples, if you remember, were believers. Judas Iscariot was not a believer in Jesus Christ. And in some of the contexts in John, uh, John's gospel, it's also clear that some of those who We're called disciples in a very general way. We're not believers. A disciple, remember, is someone who is simply a student or a follower of a teacher in a broad general sense. That's one way in which the word is used in in the Scripture. But here Jesus is talking about those who have specifically and overtly identified themselves with Jesus in a close, intimate way and are willing to be complete and total followers of him. And so he warns here that this is a situation that will create problems even within the family. This goes back to an expansion of what he said uh, earlier in verse 21, warning the disciples that brother will deliver a brother to death and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. This is serious opposition. Now, I know some of you face problems within your families. You may have faced problems as a young person when you trusted in Christ as Savior, and perhaps your parents weren't. I know some of you moved to different areas of the country so that you could be involved in a local church and, and that you could get sound biblical teaching, and you probably received some opposition from parents. I've talked to young people who wanted to go to Bible college and go to seminary, but they received opposition from their parents who did not want them to seek a career professional career in ministry because it wouldn 't be stable, what could be more stable than trusting in uh, the the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ for all of our to take care of all of our needs and all, all of the th- details of life and and, and so there 's always that kind of subtle opposition, and so the issue there is are you going to love your family members, your wife maybe, your husband maybe, your parents, your children, more than your love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And what the Lord is saying here is to follow him, he demands exclusive devotion. Nothing gets in the way of our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, I've come to... uh, Not to bring peace, but to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Then he drives home the point in verse 37. He says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. What in the world does that mean? And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Some people take that to mean that you can't really be saved. You're not really a Christian if you violate this principle. And then he goes on in verse 38 to say, He who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. These verses tie together on that key word, worthiness. And then he who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, when we look at this, this section, this first verse seems to provide a contradiction and liberals and skeptics are those who come and point this out, that this is one of those areas where there's a conflict in Scripture, a contradiction in Scripture. On the one hand, uh, you say that Jesus is supposed to be the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, and that he came to bring peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And on the other hand, uh, here he says that no, he did not come to bring peace on earth. Well, which is it? This is a contradiction. Well, we have to understand that at different times and different situations, the same person can value different things. They are not contradictory if you understand the context and the circumstance and the situation. In the Old Testament, it's very clear that the Messiah came to bring peace. We've studied this prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 many times where in verse 6 we're told that this child, this Messiah child that will be born and that will be given to us, to the Jewish people as a Messiah, will have these various titles, the last of which that's mentioned is that he is the prince of peace. This indicates that his attribute, that as a ruler he will bring peace upon the earth, That is, that thought is expanded at the beginning of verse 7. Notice of verse 7 says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. That phrase, increase of his government, indicates the prosperity under his rule, and peace indicates that there will be world peace, there will be a lack of military conflict and hostility during that thousand-year reign of Christ until the very end of that that time when Satan will be released, because through that period of time, Satan is confined in the abyss and the demons, and they're not released until the end of that thousand-year reign, and then there will be a very brief period uh, of conflict. But that thousand years will be characterized by the first time in history of genuine world peace in the sense of the absence of military conflict. So yes, the prophecies from the Old Testament indicate that this is going to be a time of peace. This is reflected in the announcement of the angels who appeared to the shepherds outside of Bethlehem where they said, glory to God in on the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now, if you're using a New American Standard or an NIV or ESV or any number of the other alphabet soups of the more modern translations, uh, it reads a little differently, but that's based on the Nestle text, which I do not think is the better text. The older text is the majority text, which I think reflects the majority of manuscripts. And that's what we find in terms of the reading in... in in Luke's gospel, in the King James Version and the New King James Version. And this is because the Messiah was coming to bring peace on the earth. That's the message in the first part of Christ's ministry in all of the gospels is that he is the promised Messiah and the Messiah is coming to offer his kingdom and his kingdom will be characterized by peace. So this makes perfect sense. It is not an announcement that there will there's going to be that Jesus came to bring world peace at that particular time, but that would be the characteristic of his messianic reign if he had been accepted. Now, the Bible talks about three kinds of peace. The first kind of peace is peace with God, peace with God, because we're born in a state of enmity with God, aren't we? We're born in a state of hostility. Uh, Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners in opposition to God, hostile to God, we were in a state of, of enmity. Christ died for us. The Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 53, that great chapter that speaks of the uh, redemptive role of the Messiah, the servant, his substitutionary death on the cross for, and his payment for sin. And verse 5 says, but he was wounded For our transgressions, indicating substitution, his wounds were in our place. He suffered and died on the cross as our substitute. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Now, in the parallelism there, you have transgressions and iniquities are are synonymous uh, parallels, and this emphasizes the The uh, purpose of his death, it is to pay the sin penalty. And then it's clarified in that third line, the chastisement, the punishment for our peace, for the purpose of peace, because we were at enmity with God, we're at hostility with God, and so he bore our punishment so that we could have uh, peace with God. And then the concluding line, by his stripes that his by his wounds, we are healed. That healing has to do in context, not with physical disease, but with the underlying spiritual disease, which is sin, and the restoration of a harmonious relationship with God. So that is what is spoken of by healing. People read, read the word healing and they immediately jump to the most superficial understanding which has to do with, with physical disease, and that's not what even mentioned within the context. Now, the New Testament talks about the same thing. In Ephesians 6.15, Paul referred to the gospel as the gospel of peace. The good news of peace, this is what we are announcing when we explain the gospel to the unsaved, is that you can have peace with God. Romans 5.1, Paul puts it this way, Therefore, having been justified by faith, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, at that instant God imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Christ. This is the doctrine referred to as justification by faith alone. And at that instant, we are credited with Christ's righteousness. We're still sinners. We still have a sin nature. But we now have a new righteousness that has been credited to our account. And when God the Father sees that instantly, he declares us to be righteous That's called the doctrine of justification by faith alone. We are declared to be righteous. We are not made righteous. We're not given infused righteousness. There's not a moral change that takes place within us. There is not a reduction in force on the sin nature. It's still the nasty, corrupt nature it always was. But we understand that because of the baptism by the Holy Spirit in Romans 6, 3 through 5, that we're freed from its tyranny. But it's still there, just as corrupt, just as strong, just as nasty as it's always been. And what Paul says is because we have been justified by faith, we now have peace, present tense. We have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is also known as the doctrine of reconciliation. We have been reconciled to God, that that state of enmity has been removed, and now there is a state of peace and harmony between us and God. So in Second Corinthians five eighteen and 19, Paul says, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. That occurred at the cross because at the cross, that barrier, that sin barrier that exists between man and God was taken down and removed when Christ paid the penalty for sin. So we're told he has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given to us that ministry of reconciliation. That's the gospel of peace. That ministry of reconciliation is to tell others that that they have been reconciled to God by Christ. And so what we are to tell them, according to verse 19, is that we are to, uh, we are to give them the message of reconciliation, that they are to be reconciled to God. How does that take place? By putting their trust in Jesus Christ alone. So the first way in which peace is used in the scripture has to do with that relationship with God, our, the fact that we are reconciled to him. The second way in which peace is used in the scripture has to do with the sense of inner calm, a sense of tranquility, a sense of stability And even happiness, no matter what those external circumstances may be, no matter how how much persecution or opposition there may be, no matter what level of rejection we may be experiencing, we can be relaxed because we put our focus upon the Lord. And that takes time to learn how to do that that 's not something that you just acquire instantly. You have to learn the promises and you have to learn how to claim those promises and, and and over time, as you practice claiming those promises in different situations, then the result of that is that it fortifies your soul so that as you encounter these situations, it becomes second nature to you to to not get concerned, not get distracted, not to get your feelings hurt, and not to take it personally when people uh, reject you or ridicule you or oppose you because of your stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this peace is a supernatural peace. It's listed among the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians uh, five twenty to 22. Jesus said in John 14, 20, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. So this isn't the kind of peace that somebody can acquire through using positive mental attitude techniques that are available to any human being and any sin nature. This is something totally different. This is a supernaturally based stability that comes as a result of an ongoing walk by God the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives us his peace and he says, not as the world gives, do I give it to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. In other words, don't. there's no reason to give in to anxiety or concern or to uh, be stressed out about opposition and hostility from unbelievers. You ought to expect it. It's, it goes with the territory. It's, it's the normal situation. You may have not experienced that before, but trust me, that is going to change in our lifetimes. And then in John 16, 33, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. That word there means adversity. You will experience opposition. That is what Jesus is talking about to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10. We will face adversity. There is a terrible, uh, misrepresentation of dispensationalists that has been going around. I've been familiar with this for, uh, most, most of my life. And by the way, the, the, there's some new film that's supposed to be coming out, uh, that's an attack on, uh, the pre-tribulation rapture, it's really taking on the, the, uh, popularity of the left behind books and the recent release of another, uh, version of the first, uh, first left behind book. And in this, this film, one of the things they say is that dispensationalists uh, are mis, mis, representing and deceiving the Christians in their congregations because they're telling them that they're not going to experience tribulation. They can escape tribulation in this life by uh, by the rapture. And see what they what they're doing is they're they're presenting a, a a logical fallacy by taking a word tribulation which refers to adversity and we often refer to that great end time uh, period of the wrath of God during the Daniel's 70th week as the tribulation. And so they, they have sort of a bait and switch technique here where they, uh, they say, see, these, these, you're not going to go through the tribulation is the same as saying you're not going through any tribulation. And that's not true. We recognize and teach and dispensationalists have always experienced this, that, that there is opposition to the truth of God's Word and that Christians go through horrible horrible opposition, and in much of the world there is still a tremendous amount of martyrdom. We read continuously about things that are taking place in Iraq and in Syria as these forces of ISIS are uh, are, are are killing Christians. I read a horrible report this last uh, week within the last couple of days coming out of Albania that they have found groups of Muslims in Albania that are torturing Christians and harvesting their organs while they are still alive in order to sell them on the organ transplant market. Goes beyond our imagination. We are going to go through difficulty, but that does not mean that we're going to go through the adversity of the great tribulation. Jesus said we would have tribulation, but... Here's the promise. He has overcome the world. And that's a perfect tense in the Greek, which means he has already overcome it and has had victory over it. And because he has had victory over the world system, we can have victory over the world system. It has to do with whether or not we are going to follow him so we can have Inner peace. So the first way which peace is used is in terms of our relationship with God. The second is in terms of inner peace and inner tranquility. And the third way that peace is used is in this, the absence of war or military conflict, and that this will characterize the final reign and rule of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes to the earth, and establishes his kingdom upon the earth, and we have passages such as isaiah fifty four ten that says where God tells uh, the the Jewish people that he will uh, not remove his covenant of peace during this period of time these chapters at the end of Isaiah focus upon the coming kingdom, and he says, "My covenant of peace will not be removed and in isaiah sixty six uh, 12. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. This will characterize the world under the messianic rule. In Isaiah 2, 4, it's described in this way, He shall judge between the nations, that is the Messiah, and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither that shall they learn war any more. Now, that verse has been ripped out of context and it's been chiseled over the entryway of the United Nations in order to show that they are really a religious organization and they are attempting to be the uh, Messiah of this age, that they will bring peace on the earth. But they are just a testimony to the fact that this can't be accomplished by human means or human efforts. This will characterize the end times when there will be peace. But that won't happen until the kingdom comes. Now in Matthew, the message that is being proclaimed, the gospel, the good news that's being proclaimed is the good news of the kingdom. Jesus is offering the kingdom to Israel and if they accept it and accept his reign, then there will be peace. But as Jesus says uh, later on in Matthew, he says, he says, the kingdom is in your midst. But the kingdom is being taken by violence. This has been true throughout all of of history, that there is this violent opposition to God's plan and God's purposes. And so throughout history, and especially during the time of the incarnation, there was a violent reaction to the presence of the king. And so peace did not come at that time. Instead, there was a violent reaction to the message of the king. And that is what Jesus is talking about. So the principle that we see is that until Jesus returns to establish his righteous rule, there will not be peace but hostility uh, toward those who proclaim the gospel. And that is what we can expect. But we have to learn not to react to that hostility. So Jesus says to his disciples, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. Not in that sense. Not at that time. But I... I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, whenever we see the word sword in Scripture, if it's not talking about a literal sword, if it's talking about sword, a sword metaphorically, it represents uh, death because a sword is used to bring death. And so Jesus is talking about the fact that there will be conflict even to the point of death for those who follow him. And then he says that this is going to extend down into your closest relationships. That if you take a stand for Jesus Christ and for the Word of God, then you have to be, you have to recognize that this is going to impact and disrupt even your most intimate relationships or it might. And so he then concludes this in verse 37 by saying, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter uh, more than me is not worthy of me. Now, what in the world does he mean when he says that if we do not, uh, that if we love father or mother more than him, or we love our children more than him, then we're not worthy of him? We have to understand this particular word. It's in the box on the screen. Oxios. And oxios has that meaning of something of like value, something that is fit, something that is deserving, something that is suitable, or something that is good enough. So let's just do a little word substitution here. And Jesus says, he who loves father or mother more than me, if you love your parents, if you love your family more than me, and we're reminded of the person who came to Jesus, said, I will follow you, but wait a minute, I have to go, I can't do it right now, I have to go bury my father. And we studied that particular text. What he's doing is he's using an excuse, putting his family first. I have family responsibilities. You understand the divine institution of uh, a family, how important that is. So I'm not going to follow you right now. Uh, we'll wait till I take care of my family responsibilities. But Jesus says, you know, go your way. You're not ready to be a disciple yet. A disciple puts me first. And then everything else will be taken care of. So Jesus says, he who loves father and mother more than me is not good enough, is not suitable. Now, is this talking about salvation? See, some people will take verses like this and say, well, that, that means that that we're not good enough to be saved. But salvation is a free gift. Salvation is not something that is earned. This is something that is earned. Uh, we could use another word. He who loves father and mother more than me is not deserving of me. See that? And people take that as if that's referring to getting into heaven. But this isn't talking about getting into heaven. This is talking about being a disciple, a committed follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Same thing comes up with the use of worthy in verse 38. He who does not take his cross and follow me, follow after me is not worthy of me, is not deserving of me. So the point that Jesus is making is if we are going to follow him, if we are going to say that I am a disciple of Jesus, I'm a follower, I'm a believer who wants to pursue spiritual maturity, that there are conditions that we must meet, otherwise we cannot be a disciple. And this gets pretty tough. In fact, this second verse, verse 38, is is one of the most repeated conditions for discipleship in the Gospels. It is stated five times, two of which in slightly different ways. Those two that are slightly different include Mark ten thirty-eight. So here the five verses are up on the screen. Matthew sixteen twenty four, Mark eight thirty-four, Luke nine twenty-three, Matthew ten, thirty-eight, and Luke 14:27 let's just make some initial observations first of all note that Matthew states it twice under different circumstances in different situations so Jesus states this principle on more than one occasion in fact i would think that Jesus probably stated it several times that are not recorded in Scripture. There are several things that Jesus says on more than one occasion, just as there are many doctrinal principles that I teach over and over again. He would have taught these things over and over again. But the fact that the writers of Scripture record any saying of Jesus more than once tells us that this is something the Holy Spirit wants us to pay particular attention to. In the first 3 examples, Matthew 16:24, Mark 8:34 and Luke 9:23, the context is pretty similar. In Matthew 10:38 and Luke 14:27, we have different context, but in each of these Jesus is emphasizing what it means to follow him. I've highlighted the term in purple here. Jesus is really talking about what is the condition for following him. He's, in each of these situations, he says, "Follow me," except for Matthew 10:38, and I highlighted that in a slightly different color. It really doesn't show up that way on the screen, but it's a slightly different color. Uh, there, in Matthew 10:38, the passage we're looking at, Jesus says, "He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me." That's the only time that worthiness enters into uh, enters into this particular saying. Luke fourteen twenty seven, Luke writes that Jesus saying, "Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple." So that introduces another uh, interesting factor. Is addressing it from the negative is we can't be a disciple at all it's completely excluded if we don't take up our cross now on this slide we have i highlighted a couple of other phrases that are parallel to follow me to show that that's what he, what's being emphasized jesus is giving that condition if anyone desires to come after me to follow me those are the same uh, kind of context but if we don't take up our c- cross we're not worthy, we're not deserving to follow him. We can't follow him. Next thing we see is there's another condition here, and that is that we are to deny ourselves. This helps us to understand what it means to take up our cross is it involves self-denial. That's the juxtaposition. In other words, we have to be willing to give up all of our little self-absorbed goals. We re- our sin nature comes with a saying stamped on its very core nature, its DNA structure, that it's all about me. It's about my hopes and dreams. It's about my career. It's about my family being the way I want my family to be. It's about pursuing the, the goals, whether they're uh, academic goals, whether they're business goals, whether they are entertainment goals, whether they are social goals. It's uh, Life is what I want it to be, and I determine that. And what Jesus is saying is you can't even approach going forward in your spiritual growth unless you deal with this foundational principle that it's not about you at all. You have to turn that off, stamp it out, and it's about me, and it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. And unless you get to that point in your Christian life, you will never get anywhere in terms of spiritual growth because this is a foundational principle that he states five times now another thing that he points out in verse uh in each of these verses is that we are to take up our cross take up uh each person is to take up his cross and follow him but he says it differently in Luke 9:23 in Luke 9:23 he adds the adverb take up his cross Daily. It's not a one-shot decision. It's a daily decision. In fact, sometimes we're going to have to make this decision multiple times each day. Are we going to say no to our sin nature? Are we going to say no to the self-absorption that is our basic orientation in life and say yes to the Lord Jesus Christ? This was exemplified by the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of that great struggle that he went through enormous emotional tension that he had before he went to the cross. The terms there that are used in the Greek to describe the 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 uh, uh, wrestling in his soul, the emotional uh, tumult that he encountered as he struggled within his soul. And he was sinless. He didn't have a sin nature uh, that he was struggling with. He just had his... Uh, "...human nature," which is not quite, sometimes you can use that as a synonym for the sin nature, but he was true humanity, he was finite, and therefore he did not not look with joy on the pain and suffering that he was going to encounter on the cross." He did look with joy on the what the end result of that would be, which was our salvation, because the writer of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him. But the writer of Hebrews isn't talking about those three hours of suffering on the cross or the beatings that he went through prior to the cross, but focusing on the end result, which is the salvation of the lost but we 're to take up that this cross daily now we have to understand what that means because this is the condition two things to deny ourselves and second to take up that cross daily. if we don 't do it, the Lord is adamant. you cannot be a disciple doesn 't matter how many times you go to bible class doesn 't matter how many doctrinal notebooks you have. Doesn't how many, time, how many times a week you listen uh, to the, anything online or whatever you, you have in terms of your uh, media player. Uh, it doesn't matter. If you're not willing to say no to your sin nature and yes to the word and putting that first, then you cannot be Christ's disciple. Now, what does this mean when he says take up your cross daily? There are a lot of different views. I mean, a tremendous number of different interpretations of this, and I'm not going to go through them all because that's not necessary. Some people think it's literal and try to make it some sort of self-martyrdom or the potential of self-martyrdom, but the vast majority understands that this is a figure of speech. But what is the nature of this particular fi- uh, uh, figure of speech? Well, we have to understand what Jesus is saying here, that we are to take up our cross daily, and we have to understand that within the context of the Greco-Roman culture at that particular time. Uh, The concept of crucifixion, uh, which is uh, an expansion on the concept of the cross, goes back to the ancient Persians. Most scholars believe it was the ancient Persians that invented uh, crucifixion. The uh, Assyrians uh, promoted it, the Greeks, the Romans, the Celts, uh, it was popularized across a wide swath of different uh, cultures. Even Alexander the Great practiced uh, practiced uh, crucifixion. The Carthaginians practiced crucifixion from which the Romans practiced it. And in terms of the Roman Empire, it was a practice that was applied only to non-Romans, only to non-Romans who were the vilest of criminals, Only the worst, those who had opposed the law and the authority of Rome. And so those who were crucified were were those who had so egregiously violated the authority of Rome that they were going to be made a public example and they were going to be uh, taken through some of the most severe and excruciating torture ever known to man. There were different ways in which crucifixion was practiced. Sometimes it was just a vertical stake where someone was impaled upon that vertical stake. Sometimes it was just a vertical stake where somebody had their hands just uh, nailed to that stake and then they hung from it. There was also a form where there was a vertical stake and then they had a cross piece that was mounted on top of it like a capital T, and that cross piece is called a patabellum. And in that practice, the criminal would be forced to carry his patabellum, that cross piece, to the place of execution. And after being tortured and after being beaten, he would have to carry that cross piece, uh, through the town in, in view of, of everyone in the public, uh, for his execution. And then he ha- would have his, uh, hands nailed, uh, to that cross piece through the, through the wrist because the f- bones in the, in the hand would not support the weight of the person. But if you n- put that spike through the wrist, then there's a bone structure there that will support the person. And then that patabellum would be elevated and mounted on top of the vertical stake. The purpose for that and all of that display and pageantry of horror was to show that this person was being forced to submit to the authority and the power of Rome. That their carrying the cross was a sign that their days of rebellion were over with and now they were submitted to the authority of, of, of Rome. And this is exactly how this, this idiom came to be. Carrying your cross means to submit to the authority of to, to the authorities. and so when Jesus is talking about this, he's saying, "Take up your cross means to submit to the authority of God. This is exactly what Jesus said. If you hold your place, keep your finger there and flip over to Philippians. You'll pass second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. In Philippians chapter two, we have one of the greatest expressions of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and his humility and his uh, obedience to God. In verse 8, we read, And being found in appearance as a man, so it's talking about Jesus' humanity, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death. See, this Even the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity had to submit to the authority of God the Father and go to the cross to pay the penalty for sin. And this is the point that Jesus is making on a daily basis. We have to make a decision as to whether or not we are going to submit to the authority of God, to the authority of God's word in every area of our life, walking by God the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, we cannot be a disciple. We cannot grow to spiritual maturity. In Matthew 10:39, Jesus wraps up this sentence by saying, He who finds his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, if you are pursuing your agenda, finding your life, if you're pursuing your agenda and what you think will make life meaningful for you, then in the end you will lose it. You will never achieve happiness. You will never achieve any kind of eternal uh, eternal consequence to your life. You will lose happiness. You will lose meaning. You will lose direction in life. The only way that we can secure happiness, meaning, value in life is to lose our life for Christ's sake, and we will find it. This verse has always reminded me of catching a monkey. You all know how to catch a monkey? You build a wooden box and you make it very secure and you cut a hole in that wooden box and inside that wooden box, which is chained to the ground or chained to a tree, you put a banana or piece of fruit that the monkey's gonna like and you just cut a small hole, a hole that's just big enough for the monkey to tighten up his hand and put it through that, that hole. And that monkey's gonna put his hand through that hole and then he's going to open his, uh, hand up wide and grasp that banana or that piece of fruit and he doesn't want to let it go. And he's gonna try to get out of that trap And he's going to try to pull his hand out of that trap, but it won't come back out through the hole, and he's caught. Because he doesn't understand that unless he gives up what he wants, he can't get free. And see, that's how so many Christians are. They're like that monkey. They don't want to give up their life, their agenda, their hopes, their dreams. doesn't mean that you can't achieve them. There are many people. The Lord says, that's what I want you to do. But if you're not willing to give it up, If you're not willing to follow the Lord no matter what, if you're not willing to to lose your life for his sake, then you will never have life. You'll have eternal life and you'll be in heaven, but you won't have the quality of life on this earth that you could have or should have as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It may even lead you to physical death. But what the Lord says is the only way that you're going to have real life is to lose it for his sake, and then you will find it. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and be reminded that our salvation and eternal life is a free gift. But the quality of life, the real peace and happiness, joy that you have promised us, the hope that is that will be ours, is a result only of giving up our life, relinquishing our hopes, our dreams, being willing to give that up in order to pursue your agenda, your plan for our life, your priorities. That we need to be willing to follow you no matter what the cost. And the cost may be high, and it may not. But we need to be willing to follow you no matter what the cost. We live in a world where we're in a battle, where we are constantly uh faced with the opposition of the cosmic system. In many ways, that's been hidden, that's been covert. It hasn't been as dreadful as it is in many countries and many cultures. But the overt opposition to Christianity uh, is increasing, and in our lifetime we may face some horrendous opposition and even the possibility of, of jail, prison, or torture for our faith. The issue is how are we going to handle that, whether it is the more covert type of opposition and persecution or whether it is the more overt type, the principles are the same. That is that we have to fortify our soul with your word. And that only comes, and the starting point is being willing to deny ourselves and to take up our cross daily to follow you. Now, Father, we want to make it clear to anyone who's here who's maybe has no certainty of salvation, no assurance of their salvation, no recognition that they will spend eternity in in heaven, that the issue for you is not taking up your cross. The issue for you is not denying yourself. The issue for you is simply trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Salvation is a free gift. Uh, Discipleship is based on effort. It's based on works. It's based on growth. But salvation is a free gift. Christ has done all the work. All you have to do is accept it by putting your faith alone in Christ alone. And this is your opportunity to settle that for all eternity by believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Now, Father, we pray that you challenge each of us with what we studied this morning, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.